Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. This is part two of Children of the Sun, Paganism and Folk Song in Lithuania. If you haven't yet heard the first episode in this two-part series, I recommend you go back and listen to it now, since, as the second part of the story, this episode relies upon and refers often to the first. In this episode, I meet a holder of traditional songs, learn from an ethnomusicologist about the bugbears of folk song collection, and engage in sun worship with some pagans on a hill who changed my whole perspective on life and spirituality. It's late August, the sun is shining brilliantly in southern Lithuania, and I'm walking in the shade of a tall pine forest with my friend Egle Chesnikavichute. Egle is doing her master's in ethnomusicology, studying the song traditions of the Zukia region, of the villages in and among the forest where we walk now. Egle takes many of the songs she learns here and gives them new life by arranging and performing them with her folk band, Obelia. The woods of Zukia are a sweet relief after the summer heat and anonymity of the city, but Egle is a little concerned. She hopes to introduce me to some of the elders she's been working with, collecting their songs and interviewing them about singing technique, but she can't be sure they'll be at home when we arrive. Many of them don't have telephones, and on a summer afternoon, they would be outside anyway, so you can't call ahead. You have to just hop off the train at a stop that isn't really a stop, and walk through the forest for a half an hour or more to see who's available today. Begley is apologetic. She wants me to meet the amazing tradition bearers she's gotten to know over her many years visiting this place, but she knows that the more years that pass, the fewer elders remain. She calls them grannies, a term that indicates her tender familiarity with them, her sense of them as caring mentors, who she loves deeply in return. The first lady we go to visit is not at home. She's out picking mushrooms, chanterelles, and bullets. We walk another half an hour through trees and past lakes to a village nearby, where one of her closest friends, Elena, lives. And we are delighted and relieved when her husband answers the door, welcoming us in. Elena emerges from the kitchen to sit with us in the living room at a table by the window. Egle catches up with her, in Lithuanian, of course, and asks if she would be willing to sing a song for us. Egle signals to me with her eyes that I should take out my microphone, and Elena begins to sing, taking time to draw the melodies and verses out from the deep well of her memory. Tai 
Langa, Lita e a Jurita, e na Pudimuxa lá. Argrajei área, berenhalhas pudinele, argrajei. Ai, nai, eu tive a ejergá. Mano berenhalho, eu adiós as pudinelhas, mano berenhalho. Garaușe așa zomiș. I'm told she's more accustomed to singing with a group, but she bravely sings for us. Her small voice carrying such a volume of meaning and tradition that it's hard to fathom how she herself experiences these songs. Partly because many of them predate the Christian world, invoked everywhere in this living room by crosses and sacred images on the walls. One song in particular leaps out at me. Tigas pasbi o ya lelo mai ya uno bernoji lelo lelo mai kadis nyatyotu lelo mai It's another of those prehistoric type advent songs I had heard earlier at Ramava camp with the repeating refrain of Lelimoy As we sit with this little old lady, it occurs to me that it takes a special person to not only listen to and record the songs of the elders with their immense history and importance, but also to hear what's behind them to listen for the personal stories, to see the elders as people, and genuinely connect with them. Egle does. It was a Christmas song, just as the one before, and uh, she told me that all the elders or parents of all them, they were gathering to one place to sing, you know, and the children were just sitting somewhere in the fireplaces, like, like here, you know. Somewhere there and just listening, and that's how they learned them. Though this song to me impresses as a document of ancient belief, Egle is able to draw out how Elena sees it as something more intimate the memory of her parents and siblings, of the fireplace of her childhood at night. Yeah. 
I spoke with Egle alone, after our visit with Helena, and she told me about the struggle to record songs from people who come out of such a different paradigm than we do, who see songs as inseparable from community and from daily life. Egle is one of only a few people working with the elders to preserve and continue folk traditions in Zukia. Her main struggle, she says, is that her friends, often the only bearers of these traditions remaining, of song, story, and of handicraft, are not going to be in this world for very much longer. I used to be uh, to be exploring or going to those villages in the region called Zukia. It's one of five ethnographical regions in Lithuania, so uh, I have been doing researches or just like going and recording songs or different stories from the past for the last seven years. Uh, but as last year I I started to study ethnomusicology, I started my project or research, maybe should be a better word. Uh, so I really want to find out more about about singing itself, not the songs, which are almost uh, distinctive or distincted. Extinct? Extinct. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, like, it's really difficult to find really well singing people. I mean, nowadays, because uh, all this singing tradition in the village was uh, very dependent on the singing leader who was leading the songs, who was uh, kind of the only one who knew all the lyrics or he could have this right to improvise or to add some extra lyrics according to the situation which is needed. For example, it's wedding, so he knows like what about he should sing and he improvises a bit, but all the rest society, they are like just repeating or uh, repeating the words he he just performed or... Or she? Or, or she also, yeah, bo- both can be. Uh, or they are repeating same refrain all the time, so... Uh, as nowadays all these villages uh, are becoming like emptier and emptier and people are dying young people moved to to the cities they work there and they come back to the villages only to visit the elderies uh, so at the same moment when this songs leader die there happens to be a really big problem like to to record well, uh, good singing because all others they kind of like they sang before but they like they find it very difficult to to sing like a solo, you know, for you. They uh, so so with all this research of mine, I go to the villages and they play some archival recordings for them or records maybe, and uh, I ask them to comment. Do they remember the song? Um, was that song performed only by women or by by men or both could sing that? I also ask like, is it like beautiful singing or what kind of vocal like they prefer you know like like sharp or kind of shouting voice or more calm and soft and uh, before before starting all this research I, I really thought that it will be kind of easy I even like prepared all the tables with all those features of, of singing you know but what I saw or, or what I found, found out that it's very difficult for those people to describe the singing like in these aesthetical terms yeah and in the it suggests me, I mean, it's really not my final uh, final conclusion, but at the moment I guess that uh, maybe they never saw this singing as aesthetical thing. They just had this all folk singing as the thing which, um, which connects the society, which uh, also adds a very big 
part to ceremonies, to rituals, you know, like of burial, of wedding, of uh, of giving name for for a baby, you know, uh, or or let's say for for some wax as uh, collecting the hay or something because they were singing in every moment and they had those specific songs so maybe they just never thought like what kind of singing could be beautiful you know or something like that and uh, they just had this as a connection of society or helping do something i ask if she can give me some more insight into the complex connections between folk music and nationalism that i've encountered at ramava camp and elsewhere in my visit Egle confides the difficulty she's had as a researcher and a traditional singer in accessing certain songs that don't fit the official expectations of what a Lithuanian folk song should be. Those ethnographical excursions or those folk music uh, collecting excursions or expeditions, as we call in Lithuanian, they were very active like in the second part of, uh, of Soviet occupation period. And... Uh, those ethnographists or ethnomusicologists, they they recorded really lots of songs. But uh, I would find one problem that they could record like everything, but the technology was like very expensive and all those machines, you know, and, and uh, this round, I don't know like, how should they call it? These are not cassettes, but, but those... Magnetic tapes? Magnetic tapes, yeah. yeah. So these things were very expensive, so they were saving every second of that. And uh, they used to record, let's say, only two or three first verses. And then uh, all the rest lyrics were just written down by hand. So the thing I, I found, which was really strange for me, that, for example, in uh, that period, in almost every village of the of this uh, middle Zukia, where I'm, where I'm working, uh, almost in every village there was one song recorded. It's about how Cossacks came into the village and uh, how they took the drunkard husband who, as we understand from the lyrics, was not like very good for his wife away. And then this uh, wife sings that like, oh, I'm so happy they took him, you know, mm-hmm. but um, it's a pity that they didn't tie him up tight enough and she is worried that he will escape, he will come back and he will beat her and so on, you know. So the lyrics are quite shocking, you know, and, and I find it very interesting song, you know. Uh, but the melody of it, according to those ethnographists, was uh, not very worthy and uh, and they, they didn't release it in any book. In uh, I mean, no folk ensemble sings this song. Even it was very popular. And those ethnographists, when they were coming to the villages, as there were so many singers around, you know, they were asking, not like, do you remember some songs as we do now? But they were asking, uh, so could you sing like the best songs, you know, like, or the songs you you love the best or, or something like that? So so all people were singing this one, but th- there's this problem that ethnographists choose is like, what's the best for them, you know, not what's the best for people. And... Uh, when I heard the song, I, in the village, I mean, I was like, oh my god, like that's such a specific song. I have never heard it, and uh, maybe that's a discovery I made, you know. So we we made it with a band, like with our arrangement. And there was one uh, folk festival, which uh, which is annual, it happens in every May, and uh, there was an event when in the evening, lots of folk groups, folk ensembles gather in one place. And there is this idea that like. Every folk group teaches 
all the rest one song so we were like oh we we, we must teach all of them this song and and we just started and we saw that everyone's singing and we were like well what's happening you know like why is it so because i have never heard that anyone like singing this and it seemed that all of them know it then i found out that like yeah everyone knew it but uh, they didn't think it's like uh, valuable or worth singing that it sounds like chestushka what's like in russia these kind of like hmm, not very valuable songs sang just while drinking or something you know There's also songs which has a lots of Slavic influence in the Zukia, which I really try to record because in my opinion it's a very specific, you know, for example, we, uh, I recorded song once, which uh, has maybe eight or nine verses now, I cannot remember, but, but uh, there's like one verse in Lithuanian, another in Polish, then again in Lithuania, another in Polish, and the songs tell a story how there is a lad coming into the forest how he is meeting a maid who is who is picking berries and all that conversation is in this double language because the the guy is is polish and the girl is lithuanian and for me like it's so interesting you know and so valuable in this historical way but again no ensemble is performing that because it's like not pure lithuanian folk song and um, I'm so sad, actually, those songs uh, almost disappeared because all those people from the villages, which are still alive, they were never asked to sing such songs. Or if they were starting to, they were interrupted by ethnographists and they were saying like, oh, no, 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 we're interested in like Lithuanian folk songs, you know, mm-hmm. in this kind of pure Lithuanian. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, we are not living in uh, in some uh, island in the sea or somewhere high in the mountains that we would be such pure Lithuanian culture. We have lots of influences from other places, so I don't want to separate them somehow, like, you know, and we love to perform such songs because nobody else is is doing that. So we also have a song about Cossacks, how how they came to the manor and how they they got a maid, like a bride, you know, to to take back. And it has this uh, refrain, which, uh, which is Raz dva tri luli, and uh, it's again kind of Russian, yeah, uh, or Slavic as we can say, and again nobody's performing that, even if that song is from our most famous singer from Zukia. So we try like to to do <laughs> these these kind of songs because in another way I feel that they will just die. <laughs> Ante vulodzit za dvaro triskazokai kortavoi Raz, dva, tri luli triskazokai kortavoi Triskazokai kortavoi tėvas dukridovanoi Raz, dva, tri luli tėvas dukridovanoi Tėvas dukridovanoi nemotų laidę žinoi Raz, dva, tri luli nemotų laidę žinoi Kai motų laidai žinoi Kelly 
Магрица всю раз, два, три, лёли, Балнок, жаргон, Магрица. I'm surprised, and also not surprised, to learn from Egle that the collection of Lithuanian folk music has been limited by a narrow definition of Lithuanian identity. As she observed, Lithuanian identity is not so discreet, not so simple as all that. Cultural influence from neighboring ethnicities is natural and even healthy. In the villages, this cultural integration was welcome and part of the fabric of song history part of the repertoire of village life. And these little grannies know better than anyone that culture does not conform to any top-down definitions of what it should be like, what belongs, and what is outside. They don't even have to say it. They just live it. A song is a song, and they sing the songs that they are given. They certainly aren't about to judge. The greater the amount of material remaining from a time, it appears the more debate occurs about what that material means, how it can be used, and who is even authorized to use it. And in the midst of that debate, much of the most valuable content of the culture, the emotional and spiritual richness, remains hidden in plain sight, in the mundane, the undefined, in syncretic and cross-cultural factors. Penegle, who had pointed out that she's not even from the Zukia region herself, but finds herself fast becoming one of its tradition-bearers, perhaps knows that even more keenly than others. After our work in the village is done, Egle and I walk again into the tall pine forest, to a secret spot she loves, a sheltered place at the edge of a wide, cool stream. We light a fire, make a small dinner, and she begins singing a song from Zukia, this region where she does her research. This song she sang blew me away, seeming simple at first, but telling the emotional story of a soldier who's dying, and his family and friends are trying to rouse him, pleading for him to get up and return to his life, to his family and to his friends. I should mention she was reluctant at first to share this song publicly because she'd only just learned it and hadn't figured out yet how to sing it in the regional style. But I think you'll agree that it is just lovely. Жалой герой медали, чулба дробне пухсталей, гули нагаль, тевало суня, гули нагаль, тевуло суня, и ратыця тевуло. I noticed that this song too contained the repeating word Kelkis, like the ones I had heard sung at Ramava camp in that singing workshop, and maybe these songs belonged to the same family, though the subject is a war long past. The emotional weight of the call, Kelkis, a rise, is tangible, here in the forest, in Zukia, with village life quickly disappearing, traditions expiring all around us, amid bird song and the great silence of trees. <laughs> Motulay Sunya, 
Иротаица мотула, Ирот нештя морешкиней, Кялики суняли, Ай наме карту, Кялики суняли, Ай наме карту, Ай к мотула саушален, Нешка морешкиню саклейтален. Сопагаливал и спал заман шреда. Сопагаливал и спал заман шреда. Hearing Egle's voice singing it, the song spoke to me of a sense of exhaustion, of a burden maybe too great to bear, an impossible task. In her case, the task of saving everything. In the face of such wholesale loss, my interest in whether a song or tradition is pagan or not seems ridiculous, unimportant. A person wants to give up in the face of the absurdity of war, of loss, of unreasonable expectations. But the call returns again and again. Kelkis, Kelkis, arise, get up. The world needs you to witness it. We return to the city by train the next afternoon, and that evening I climb up into the little loft bed in my rented room and fall asleep. I dream I'm in the orange electric light of an old kitchen, and in my hand is a small comb. I'm gently brushing my own grandmother's hair. It's soft and glowing white and cut short as it was in the last years of her life. My oma who was born in the Netherlands and emigrated to Canada, died five years ago. I realize I've never dreamt of her before. I wake up feeling a strong sense of love and approval. I interpret the dream to mean that, although I'm feeling like somewhat of an outsider in this different culture, and I'm keenly aware that someone might say I ought to be exploring the songs and stories of, quote-unquote, my countries, my own old-world grandmother approves, on a mystical dream-vision level at least, and maybe that's good enough for me. My visit to Lithuania is nearly over, but I have one more big stop before I go. I keep hearing about this place called Shatrios Ugnis, or the Fire of Shatria. The fire is a resurrection of the perpetual fire tradition that was once widespread in pagan devotion in Lithuania prior to the state's conversion to Christianity, when all of these sacred fires were ordered extinguished. The fire's location is Shatria Hill, a scenic regional park, and one of the highest hills in the Samogitia region. I've been told that a group of people have set up a small structure in the park here, and in defiance of modernity and probably the rules of this regional park, they have been tending this fire continually for most of a year. The fire, they say, is much older than that. I arrive at the foot of the hill on an expansive blue sky afternoon, scanning the green landscape for the small hut that houses the sacred fire. 
failing to locate it, I climb the hill, and from the top I can see the landscape for many kilometers around, as well as other hills in the distance. I spot a small structure on the next rise, with a continual thread of smoke emerging from the top. I plod down the hill toward it, heart racing, hoping my visit is not unwelcome. I am greeted warmly by a woman seated in front of the hut, cloaked in wool and tablet-weaving traditional belts. She introduces herself as Berute. She describes to me the symbols that appear in her weaving and the connections they have to other ancient cultures. Frogs, witches, snakes, swastikas, many-armed goddesses. Her partner, Castutus, emerges from behind the structure, and together they show me around the site, the small hexagonal building that houses the fire like the single cell of a beehive. From the inside I can see there is a wide hole in the roof for the smoke to escape, and a bench along the inside walls, just wide enough to sit or sleep on. The soot-blackened interior walls display traditional tree-of-life motifs, a small day calendar, and an oak wreath, which I guess is left over from the summer solstice celebrations. On the bench is a drum. I speak with Birute and Castutis for some time, and they tell me about how special this place is to them, how it embodies the folklore they grew up with in this country. When you wake up, you, you, you feel like you are in heaven because all clouds are below, and you only see the clouds below. Yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting because bats are coming, uh, bats in the same level as we are, and um, sheep are below. And you hear the voice of sheep uh, coming down, and uh, it's an uh, interesting parallels came. What is interesting, you in childhood you read the tales about twelve black uh, bats. Okay, in Lithuanian is dvilka brolu juodvarnei slakstančio. If I would uh, translate, it would be twelve brothers which are flying all around and they are finally saving one sister and when you came to this place you realize that that this is not a tale it's a reality when you wake up in the morning here you can see 12 black bats coming here every morning and they are flying all over the, this hill and the sun, the sister, is uh, rising up this hill and you know the peril from tail and from what you are seeing it's amazing, so, uh, amazes you because all morning colors, smells, sounds are very impressive so this place is uh, attracting people and um, I'm not interested in history, mm -hmm. but I, I think I would not lie if it was uh, some sacral place here. As we sit down to a picnic lunch at their camp in the trees, the main organizer of this fire-keeping operation, Vaidotas, who I have come here to meet in interview, arrives. Silently, he brews some tea in the samovar from thyme and St. John's wort, which I notice grow on this hillside and he hands it to us all to drink before we sit down to speak. I discover his prior silence is not because he is particularly shy, but because he doesn't speak more than a few words of English. It's a four-way conversation, then, a collective effort to tell the story of the how 
and the why of this place. I ask the questions, Vaidotas answers, and the couple who welcomed me to the site, Kestitis and Barute, translate. How did this place come to be? How did this place happen? This fire is burning 24 years, already unstoppable. The fire was kept in a private house, and uh, once a year, in the third weekend of July, this fire was brought here, and the ceremony of of renewing fire was kept till last autumn. A few years ago, he asked the man who who kept this fire in his own house, why don't you burn this fire right here where, where it belongs? He said it's impossible. Someone will. Stop it, stop it, because uh, uh, maybe the, the old man kept in mind uh, Christianity, I, I, I think so. Yeah, last autumn we, uh, the, the man has died and we buried him. Uh, after burial ceremony, the, everybody, a group of people came to Shatria to honor him, they brought the fire and uh, they stood in a circle and uh, saying some wishes and everybody wished uh, that this fire would keep burning in this place not stoppable. Eleven months already passed from this uh, time and we are still keeping the fire on and uh, like 600 years before. <laughs> Can you say about the tradition too? Yeah, we are sons of sons of the sun. So we that's it. That's what he's told. I'm translator, not not. <laughs> On this last autumn, when we had inspiration, we put the temporal house on the main hill, uh, but this place is belonging to National Park, and it's not allowed to build anything. Even Christians not allowed to, to put their cross here. But finally we had permission for 40 days to honor this man. So, 40 days uh, this temporal house uh, stood on the main hill. After that, we moved this uh, house to this place, and right now we are building a permanent house. Hundred peoples or over hundred peoples already cooperated with this project. And um, also from Latvia, Belarus, also local, many locals, uh, they are uh, helping to make it happen. And also we have some nuclear peoples who are trying to make it happen in any case. Around 30 peoples are 
nuclear peoples like uh, they they will come whatever will happen and in winter we are 30 degrees cold and we wear here and fire <laughs> i would was. say it was uh, quite uh, quite interesting to be in the cold in the middle of summer it's quite boring in the middle of winter, it is uh, something very nice and very wonderful. You have to survive, and that uh, that's uh, <laughs> that is nice. Shitaugnes, mūsų idėjame yra labai vairių žmonių. Yeah, this fire is uh, acting as uh, glue to unite peoples. And uh, actually, I think in the past it was uh, the same symbol. Uh, something to collect to one place and bring some new new quality. Okay, the most uh, difficult things are not cold, not uh, warm, but the most difficult thing uh, is to to be sure that we are doing right thing. To solve the problem when there is no man who will switch the current man. Sometimes uh, there are moments when he thinks uh, we will not be able to keep this fire. And that is the difficultest moments. This fire is like a living creature. You have to look to continue its life. And uh, you, ha- you have to watch for lumber, for people, for uh, other problems to solve. In the most difficult uh, moment, when you are completely sure it will end soon, the miracle comes. Call from phone, lumbers from sky, <laughs> whatever, and uh, everything goes on and on, the, st- still on. plan to leave for the night soon to the room I've booked in a nearby town, but they talked me into staying to join them in a sunset ritual. After spending much of the day in enthusiastic conversation with the group, I'm pretty easy to convince, and I'm curious to see what a sunset ritual looks like here, so I set up my tent and prepare to spend the night. As the sky begins to change color, we gather at the fire hut. Gastutis ties together a bundle of split wood fastening it to his back with rope. They offer me a wool cloak, warning me that the wind is cold on the hilltop. Vaidatas stacks kindling on a tall wire basket, takes an ember from the sacred fire with some tongs, then places it on the kindling. It lights immediately, and we begin our ascent of the hill, living fire in hand. At the top of the hill, we stand in a circle around a raised stone fireplace with the transferred fire blazing on top, echoing the orange sun that sets slowly in a haze across the broad landscape laid out in all directions. And we stand in ceremony, watching the round sun sink below the horizon, singing to it, thanking it, and saying farewell. The sky's dome fading from orange to twilight blue, Vaidotas takes a small piece of kindling from his pocket and holds it to the blaze, rotating it so it becomes charred all over. 
He says that this is a piece of oak, and that oak is sacred to the god of thunder, Perkunas. He is also the safeguard of order and truth. People used to char a piece of oak in this way and give it to soldiers going away to war, to protect them. Only this one is for me, as a traveler who came to visit. And they teach me a simple chant so I can sing along. And they pass the still burning oak stave from each to each around the small circle, blessing it with their touch and voices as it glows in their hands. It's hard to express exactly why this was such a powerful gesture, the creation of a talisman for me in the Thunder God's name, shaped and blackened by the devotional flame, but it's an experience I don't think I'll ever forget. I still carry it with me. wake to the sound of a drum at dawn and release a dragonfly I discover had spent the short night with me in my tent. It's time to welcome the sun back. What goes down must come up. I meet Vaidotas at the sacred fire, where he gathers a live red ember and some wood. We climb to the top of Shatria Hill, in silence this time, just the two of us now, and neither able to speak the other's language. All we hear now is birds and the bleeding of sheep arriving from somewhere to pasture below. And we sing the sun up, chanting just as we had sung it down hours before and as people have done for millennia all over this earth. As its warm pink light grows and spreads, I experience a sense of optimism and warmth, both as old and as new as the sun itself on this day. As I pack up my tent, my host disappears for a time and returns with a gift, a packet of herbs fresh from the hillside, which I had so treasured in yesterday's tea. He clasps my hands in his, and tears stand in both of our eyes. I try, fumbling with the language, to say goodbye, but he teaches me the words for see you later instead. And in my rearview mirror, I see him standing where I left him until I turn the corner out of sight. Maybe it was just because we couldn't confuse things with language, but there was something about my encounter with the people I met on Chatria that brought new clarity to the riddle I'd been wrestling with since I got to the country nearly a month ago. People gather in this place, stepping aside from their usual roles as academics, tradespeople, fathers and mothers, 
for the one purpose of devoting themselves to a sacred flame through every season of the year. And in the midst of that devotion, it seems to me, the complexity of identity, of nation and creed, just falls away. The holistic nature of village life prior to industrialization and modern culture's arrival, the seamless integration of life, song, work, and worship that Egle, Ignace, and Inia all spoke of so powerfully, is not gone. It's happening here, again, and still. And it occurs to me that I was coming at my search for the ways of paganism from the wrong end. I was waiting for spiritual permission. When no person is authorized to grant or withhold that intangible power from me. Because it's the moment you devote yourself to the moment, to the place where you are right now, to this hill, this sunrise, this sincere gathering, that the ritual comes about, almost of its own accord. Then the songs spring to mind, the sun circles along with you, and suddenly you're doing paganism. Egle is not from Zukia, and yet here she is, doing this work and connecting with these elders, becoming a tradition-bearer in her turn. And the songs Ramava uses may not be perfectly suited to pagan rituals, may be repaganized or repurposed, yet here they are, singing them to the fire and to the earth, and receiving rainbows in return. Then I may not be Lithuanian, but here I am, singing to the sun as it rises on Shatria Hill with a new and heartfelt friend, and the power of Perkunas in my hand, a bit of charred wood, a bit of ancient magic. After all of my musings and worries about ethnicity and identity, I see that maybe paganism, and tradition in general, is not about belonging, really. We humans, of the earth, already profoundly belong. We are built of the soil, we're made up of water, sky, and perpetual flame, we are, as Vaidotas said, the children of the sun. Identity, nation, and bloodline are powerful ideas, but they are not, when it comes down to it, terribly empowering. Instead of asking, where do I belong? I could ask, how do I belong? Or better yet, how do I connect? Connection, unlike the more passive notion of belonging, is active. It's enlivening. It asks, what am I reaching out to meet with? What can I better understand? What can I open my heart to, here, where I am now? The most important detail about your place in the world is not, I believe, what patch of land, which hospital bed or cityscape you were born into, but where you show up, how you open yourself to offer some sincere devotion, your eagerness to look, to sing, to learn on whatever hill you find yourself on, whatever sunrise you happen to be the ecstatic witness to. In the cab to the airport on my way out of Vilnius, I look around me in the orange light of the nighttime city and get the feeling that every brick, every stone, every tree has a core of light, a spark that is somehow connected to my heart. And I am totally in love with this place. This month was an experience, and the result is a pretty personal episode. I hope it resonated with you, that you found beautiful moments in it, I also hope that I have represented people fairly and given a sense of the complexity of a tradition, of a number of traditions, 
in the small swath I presented here. I owe endless thanks to the countless people who shared the thoughts, lives, and tender rituals you heard here, and others I couldn't fit into this episode. In my travels, I am transformed by kindness over and over again. Since this episode was recorded in 2018, naturally many things have changed and developed for the people featured in the episode. Ramava's application to become a state-recognized religion was voted down in Lithuanian Parliament by a margin of six votes. They will have to wait another ten years to make their petition again. Elena Chesnolita passed away in 2019, along with her husband. Egle is still walking and visiting in the villages of Dzukia and continues her folklore work in the city of Vilnas. And Shatrios Ugnes, the fire of Shatria, burns in Samogitia still. The intro music for Fair Folk is the song Forest March by Sylvia Woods. Most of the instrumental tracks in this episode have been provided by Lithuanian Kankalis player Jemina Trinkinaite. More details about the music that appears in this episode can be found in the show notes along with links to where you can support these musicians by purchasing their incredible work. Aside from these pre-recorded works, this episode of Fair Folk was recorded, written, and produced by myself, Danica Boyce. To support my work and make more episodes like this possible, please consider signing up to be a patron of the podcast at patreon.com slash fairfolkcast. Patreon is where most of my income comes from, and it's what makes it possible for me to make this podcast full-time now. Patreon subscribers also receive a monthly bonus Almanac episode of the podcast, which I am told they enjoy very much. Thanks again to all the musicians and collaborators who contributed to this episode. If you loved it, please share it with your hippie dad, your personal trainer, or your long-lost Lithuanian cousin. Please also rate the podcast positively on iTunes, or share it on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, take good care, and I'll talk to you soon.